at the end of our service today, we're going to acknowledge some high school graduating seniors, one of whom is mine. Uh, Eighteen and a half years ago in Miami, Florida, Susan told me she was hurting. She was hurting really badly. She told me it was time. So we drove to the hospital there in Coral Gables. We were timing her contractions. We get to the hospital. Long story short, a few hours later, this little Cuban nurse walks out and she tells us, Miss Susan, you are right about your contractions, but the pain needs to be more intense. So they released us and we went home for a day and then went back to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, a different nurse pointed at a room uh, just two away and she said, a couple of nights ago, Sylvester Stallone and his lady uh, had a baby right there. And I requested a room change so that we could uh, have our baby in that. If it was a boy, we're going to name him Rocky. Uh, we waited to find out if we were having a boy or a girl. We did it the Christian way. And we were so excited. At 6.30 Eastern Standard Time, I called Susan's family, a family full of girls, to tell them that we had a boy. We have... These graduating seniors, they're going to go to places like Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Alabama, and Auburn. That's where they're going. You'll find that out at the end of the service. But where are they going? What does the future hold? And what role will faith play in their future? You know, the church turns people away. And if we're not careful, we're turning a whole generation away when we turn into an institution. It's why I love this series that we're in, in the book of Acts. Notice what the letter that what the book is called it's called acts it's not called words or thoughts or theories or intentions it's called acts the acts of the apostle i believe the 21st century church as we move forward we can be healthier and more robust and more life-giving and more of a blessing to our planet if if we say less and do more and it is my hope that these graduates as they face the future is that they will find a faith family that they can be involved in. And that God will use that in their lives. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts, Acts chapter 2. We will get there in just a moment. We're going to continue on with this great book. They're talking about the church, the first Jerusalem church, the first church of non-denominationalism that got started. And we, we said, we have said each week, these few weeks, that the church in Acts is never portrayed as a place to attend or an event to sit through, but a movement to be a part of. And we've said it's a movement where people are captured by a message, and they're yielded to the Spirit. We're talking about this person of the Godhead, this person of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit. Pastor and author Francis Chan refers to him in a best-selling book as the Forgotten God. And we're hoping and we're praying that we would be a spiritual enterprise that supernatural things would happen in the life of our church. That we would be a movement where we see God move. That we would push away from boredom and monotony and same old, same old. And we would begin to see God work. We'd see him work in our midst. Acts chapter 1 is the, is the church gathered. The first commandment there is wait. That's so difficult for us. It had to be difficult. They didn't live in a push button technology world like we do, but it had to be difficult to wait. It's hard for you to wait, isn't it? I can wait on people. I can wait on people, but it's hard to wait on God. People I can see, I can't see God. When are you going to show up? What have you really promised? It's difficult to wait, but they're told to wait. They're told to wait so that they would realize that it's not their own enterprise, it's not their own endeavor, it's not something that's manufactured by human strength, ingenuity, and creativity. It needs to be a work of God. Wait here. And then you will receive power. 
Power to be my witnesses. We've said that witnesses, it's not so much what a witness does, but it's what a witness says has been done. A witness testifies to something that has been done. And for these people, it was the life, it was the death, it was the amazing resurrection of a person named Jesus Christ. And they were witnesses. They waited for power, and then they're commanded to be witnesses in Jerusalem, right there in their backyard, Judea, Samaria, that's close by, and then the uttermost part of the world. And that's why you and I are here today, because of this Holy Spirit-led, filled movement of the church. A church that was called to love. Acts chapter 2, let's look at these verses real quickly. Acts 2, 42 to 47, I hope you do have an open Bible. If not, you know we will aid and abet by having it on the screen. An old man is reaching for his glasses. Acts 2, 42 to 47, here we are. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. I want you to, if your Bible is open, to circle the word devotion. Now, prior to this, they waited, they received power, and they began, and they heard a sermon. They heard a sermon from a man named Peter. Now, here's what's amazing about this sermon. I think it's amazing how God works at times. Peter preaches this sermon. Peter, Peter had not been to school. He was an unlearned fisherman, not a man of great eloquence. He talked a lot, but not a man of great eloquence. And Peter stands in front of Thousands of people. He delivers a sermon, and God chose to use a man who really had a credibility gap. He had just denied Jesus. He had just struggled with sin. He had just put distance between him and Christ. And Jesus is like, come back. You're the man. You are the one that I want to use. And Peter stands up, and what a great day in the life of a church. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. 3,000 people have the scales of their eyes removed, opened up, spiritually enlightened, and they began to follow Jesus. Just a great day in the life of the church. We looked last week at the earlier part of Acts chapter 2. Where it, it tells us that things were happening so well that there were people around them who thought they were drunk. And Peter, using a little humor, says, hey, it's morning. These men, these women, we're not drunk. It's just morning time. Hence began the phrase, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. But here they were and something good was happening in their midst. It was a God thing. And their response, Scripture tells us they were cut to the heart. What a great expression. What a, what a preacher's dream to have people not with arms folded, not with the looking away, not with distance and fatigue, but to be engaged and to have their heart cut. It means they felt something. It means they experienced something. And when you have your heart cut, you immediately want to respond. You, you felt something and you're moved to do something about what you felt. Their hearts were cut and they said, what do we need to do? What is their response? The gospel, this good news, always demands a response. And the church, the first message for the church is a message for us today. Repent. Repent. Change your mind. Turn to God. Look to Him. And here we see, as the church began to take root, we see a people who are devoted. 
I want you to write down the word devotion and draw a contrast between that word and the word dabble. There is a difference between being devoted to something and dabbling with something. How many of you at one point in your life when you were young probably you took piano lessons? This is one of those show of hands. How many of you just kind of keep them up? You took piano lessons. And how many of you when you took piano lessons, man, you never looked at the clock. And you were always eager to show up. And you never skipped a lesson. And your heart was just so, I mean, your fingers and your heart, you were just so engaged. And your devotion to piano practice led to today's piano greatness. Just keep your hand up. Anybody? Yeah, at the 930 service, we had one guy, and it's Jeremy who's in the band, right? So <laughs> Jeremy had moved on to piano greatness. But here's the thing. A lot of your hands were up. An awful lot of hands were up. But nobody kept their hand up, right? Because you dabbled with piano. You weren't devoted to it. Through the years, Susan and I have opened up our home to, to disciple people. And as we've gotten older, we've mentored and discipled some younger people. And often through the years, I can think of several young ladies who've come to our house to seek Susan and to seek her great wisdom. And many times over, we've listened to a young lady. Uh, they're talking to her. I just kind of intrude, you know. And they're talking, and they're talking about a problem that they're having with a young man they're dating or sort of dating. And they will say, he has a problem with commitment. And I always interject my wisdom into that moment because I've learned that he doesn't have a problem with commitment. He's got a problem with commitment to her. He's committed. He's committed to himself. He's committed to his ego and his agenda and his freedom. And she interferes with that commitment. It's not a commitment problem. It's the object of his commitment. There's a difference between being devoted, young women. There's a difference between a man being devoted to you and just dabbling in the relationship with you. And what we have in this first century church is a people, men and women, who weren't dabbling, they were devoted. In Peter's sermon, we didn't read it all last week, but I'd love for you to later, but in Peter's sermon, he's quoting chunks from the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, he says, there's going to be a day when my spirit's going to fall fresh, and when my spirit falls... Your sons and your daughters, God wants to use women and men in ministry. Your sons and your daughters will dream dreams. They will have visions. They will prophesy. Scripture does not tell us when the Spirit of God falls afresh that we will administer, that we will have budgets and calendars and meetings and grow bored and institutionalize. It says they'll dream dreams and they'll have visions. God will cut their heart and hearts will be broken and we'll move and our faith will be a bold, daring adventure in following Jesus. And Peter preaches this sermon and the response of this church is devotion. There are four what we'll call ancient practices that they were devoted to. I want us to consider these. The first was teaching. They were devoted, not dabbling in teaching. Scripture teaches us about Scripture. And it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. The word there from Greek translated to English is inspiration. A word that you probably use a lot. You may say that was an inspiring message. You may say that song inspired me. I went to that movie and there's this scene and you describe the scene and you say it was so inspiring. It, it changed your life. We, we use that expression at my house all the time. We, we talk about food. Hey, you need to try this. It'll change your life. It'll inspire you. But we, we really do use hyperbole and exaggeration. We throw that word around, but the word inspired means God breathed. Now, when I graduated college and went into ministry and moved to South Florida in a multicultural, religious, plural, pluralistic environment, 
I went through a season of doubting my faith. I began to question a lot. And part of what troubled me was how we got the Bible, how it was given to men, how it was translated, how it was canonized, how it was chosen and selected and translated, all that. And now today, after study and research, that's one of the things that really emboldens my faith. It really frees me and excites me to realize that God used people who were frail and finite and feeble, and he gave his word through human authorship. It's not a contradiction. It really is a thing to marvel at, that God gave his word through these people. And this God-breathed scripture, it is 2 Timothy 3.16. It is profitable. Profitable for teaching, we like that. Profitable for correction, mm. rebuking, mm. training in righteousness. Mm. But those are the things that you need. Can I just say that? If, if I'm your pastor, like you need that. Like it hurts. It doesn't always bring joy in your life. But you and I, we need to be corrected. We need to be rebuked. Isn't that one of the hardest things? To be rebuked. It, it just stings. I mean, there's no way around it. We have men's ministry a lot of time in churches, and we say Proverbs 27, 17 is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and that's like a, a clarion call, that's like the passage, and it, it seems so soft and sweet, right? Iron sharpens iron, but you ever seen iron sharpen iron? You ever had a car wreck and gone to the body shop and actually seen them working on your vehicle? Sparks are flying. It, 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 iron sharpening iron is a beautiful but painful thing, and that's the effect that God's Word can have in your life. Because there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. And you and I, we can lead and we can get off course. And we need correction and we need reproof. We need training and righteousness. Now, it's not good to train, but if you've done something well, if you've trained and you've excelled, you know that the pain you go through, it yields reward. And that's the effect God's word wants to have in our lives. Hebrews 4, 12 says the word of God is alive and active. Romans 8 says that if we put our minds on the spirit, we'll have life and peace. I pray that those are regular gifts that God gives me. A word that's alive and active and a mind that has life and peace. And those two go together. The early church heard in Ephesians 5 that you ought not to get drunk with wine, but to be filled with the spirit. What a, what a lovely contrast. Why does Paul say, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit? Because when wine gets in you, how many of you have been drunk? Don't show you right. No, these guys, this guy's raising his hand over here. First time here. We love you, brother. That's, that's an honest man. What's your name? What's your phone number? No. If you've been drunk, let's just assume a few of you have, but if you've been drunk, something got inside of you and took over you. And uh, we got time. Tell us a few stories, sir, when you were drunk. Just things you've done and said. No. But something got inside you and it affected you. I have been around people who've been drunk and extroverts go introvert, go to introversion. Introverted people go extroverted. It changes you. And the Spirit can do that for you and I. In Ephesians 5 when it says don't get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit, it gives some results of what a Spirit-filled life looks like. And the Spirit-filled life, there's peace there. There's harmony. There's wisdom. We have right relationships. We submit to one another. We're not playing our own ego game. We walk into a room and it's not about us. We look to meet the needs of other people. Relationships at home, there's peace. There's singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. There's a song in our heart as the Spirit fills us. The same thing is mentioned in Colossians chapter 3, but it doesn't say be filled with the Spirit. It says let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Same results. 
walk in wisdom, there's harmony in relationships, we submit to one another, there's a song and a melody in our heart, and I think the two are really synonymous. So we don't want to be the, the church that goes overboard and have some sort of sensual, emotional-only understanding of the Holy Spirit. We want us to be a Spirit-filled church, but to be grounded and understand that a Spirit-filled person is also a person who lets the Word dwell in them richly and will yield the fruit of that life. I'm going to very soon get in my truck and drive to Tishomingo County, the north part of Mississippi, to see my 99-and-a-half-year-old grandmother, Mavis. If you've gone to, yeah, just the name Mavis is beautiful, right? <laughs> Y'all keep me accountable and make sure I go see Mavis. But I don't know how, how many days she has left. But I credit Mavis for, in large part, giving me a love for the Word and seeing that in her life. And that woman, she bore fruit. She bore fruit. People knocked on her door and sought her wisdom. And those closest to her loved her dearly. Great woman and a great love. She taught me to hear the word, to read the word, to memorize the word, to study it, and to meditate on it. And I teach it often. If you've been hanging around Fonder, you hear me say this a lot, but I want you to hear me say this a lot. If you worry, you meditate. Because when you worry, you're turning things over in your mind. And a life in the Word, when you're devoted to the Word, it's not ignoring of the Word. It's not convenient excusing of the Word. It's not dabbling in the Word. It's a life devoted where you have a regular intake of the Word of God. And then you see the fruit of that. It's powerful. For what? For teaching. For correction. For rebuking. For training in righteousness. That we may be equipped for every good work. They were devoted to the Word. They were devoted to fellowship. When the Holy Spirit lives in us. Bill Bright used to say, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, God can be resident in your life but not president. And when you and I yield to the Spirit and let Him take over our lives, He influences every area of our lives. And if you listen to the words of Jesus and you follow the Master Teacher, you've got to know that you can't have wrong relationships and be right with God. So, are you yielding more of your life to God's Spirit? Just as alcohol can affect you negatively, are you letting the Spirit affect you positively? He's helped me, this power source has helped me in my own life keep shorter accounts. To have sarcastic comments, well, less than I usually do. And to build other people up. To pursue peace. To not move into silent withdrawal, but to initiate conversations and relationships. Early in our marriage, Susan and I made a vow to not go to bed angry. We had an early fight, and I went for a walk. And I was just praying that God would give me the words to say to enter into the home and to tell her uh, that she was wrong and that she would receive that <laughs> from the Holy Spirit. When I got there, she was in bed, and there was a note on the counter that said, Dear Robert, I hate you. Love, Susan. <laughs> but isn't that life? Like isn't, that, like, isn't that us? Like, let's don't try to be shiny, happy, we have it all together, people. Because you've got a flesh, and it's good to acknowledge that flesh, and it wars within you. There are warring factions, and there can be life yielded and given to the flesh. That's the default mechanism for everybody, for me included. And then there's life in the Spirit. Not a life that drifts, not a life that dabbles, but a life that's devoted to the Word, to fellowship. And then it says to break in a bread. It's a home that's opened up. 
It's a commitment to hospitality. Scripture teaches us that some of us have a real gift for hospitality. And like any gift, if you have that gift, excel in that gift and you'll bless a lot of people. I see some in Fondren that this local body, this church family, you have the gift of hospitality and we're better and richer for it. I think breaking the bread does mean that, but I think it means in the deeper level, it means what we do as a church family uh, the final Sunday of every month as we take communion together. There's the breaking of the bread representing the body of Christ. The blood shed for you. It's a regular time for us to say. To say God has given us the greatest gift, his son. But it's a time for us as we receive that gift to examine carefully. To confess sin and to turn to God. When do you stop needing to confess and repent and turn? Never. Never ever. What if you've been here a while? What if you're old? What if you're on staff? What if you're a pastor? Can I tell you, never, never, repent, repent. Baptism is a one-time act of obedience, really the first act of obedience for the follower of Jesus, Acts tells us. But you never, you and I never stop confessing. So as a faith family, we're not doing it today, but when we do that, it's just a reminder to examine, to confess, and to turn, and to, again, thank God for this great gift. They were devoted, devoted to the word, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and they were devoted to prayer. Some of you know our brother John Pitts. John and Allison are one of the dearest couples at Fondren Church. I love them dearly because what they mean to us, their friendship, their godliness. John uh, skipped Easter at Fondren with his wife Allison and their new baby Samuel. They went down to Louisiana uh, to be with his family. And on the Saturday night before Easter, his arm began to swell. I won't give you all the details, but it turned ugly. It turned awful. And they were afraid of infection, of, of um, amputation. We have a lot of doctors in Fondren Church who were giving us information. And they were like, this is bad. This is dangerous. Our church was praying for John Pitts. We, we were afraid of amputation. We were, at, for a season, thinking uh, the possibility of him losing his life. We were praying earnestly for our brother, John Pitts. Susan told me last night that uh, she got a text from Allison, his wife. She said, we're going to try our best to make deacon ordination service tonight. He, John's a deacon. And these are his brothers. And he wants to be here tonight. He wants to lay hands on new deacons who are going to serve in our church. That's what the church does. And when we see someone down, when we see someone in dire straits, we pray. Acts 12.5 motivated me to call our staff in here one day a couple of weeks ago just to say, let's pray. I know it wasn't on your calendar today. Y'all think we do this all the time, right? You work for a church and you just read the word and pray. And that, you know, that's not exactly a typical day for any church that I know of. But let's come in here and let's pray. And we, we, we had a great time praying for you, praying for that a movement of God would take root and fruit in Fondren, and that we would bless this community, and that it would spill over. And there were a lot of prayers offered individually by staff, and we gathered here on the stage, and I had everyone write their name and a couple of prayer requests, fold the card the same so we couldn't choose, and then everybody just picked a card anonymously, and I gave clear instructions, pray for the person. You, you choose that card, pray for them, and let them hear from you this week. Let them hear from you, and I, and I will give you a deadline. By Sunday, at least, send one text message saying you have prayed for them, that you love them, you care for them, you're praying for them. And I noticed each and every passing day, no one had texted me. And I'm like, I'm, a, like, I'm like the boss. Like, you know, somebody's got to come through here. And last Sunday after church, Daniel and I were on a plane flying to Canada, and I said, you know, Daniel, no one has texted me. Like, today's the deadline. I haven't heard from anybody. And the moment I said that, I could just see his face, like the guilt on his face of he's going to have the microphone at the end of the service so he'll have the final word here but do we pray for each other 
Let us be a people who love and encourage and, and pray and seek God's best on behalf of the other. In 1 Kings chapter 18, there's the prophets of Baal. They're on one side and they have this worship service. It's really loud, really loud. And they're passionate in their worship. They even have a fellowship after the worship service. It went from morning to evening. And it says this in 1 Kings 18, the result of this. No one answered and no one paid attention. Elijah prayed, no noise, just prayer. Simple prayer, probably not a long prayer. And God's spirit fell from heaven. And fire fell and a work was done. And I wonder what kind of people we'll be. I wonder what kind of leaders God will raise up. Will we seek him? Will we do it earnestly and sincerely? Will we dabble in it? Or will we be devoted to it? Now go back, if you would, to an earlier slide. Um, here's what happened in the book of Acts. We're, we're putting this in front of you. We, we don't want to preach against or, or, or ignore any of this. In Acts, when the Spirit shows up, people communicate across linguistic barriers. Strangers love each other like brothers and sisters. The wealthy give away their resources. The poor are being taken care of. Gender discrimination is overturned. Racial discrimination is overturned. The lane walk, the sick are healed. The dead are raised. And as we looked at last week, there's, there was a rushing mighty wind. There were tongues and there were fire. There were miracles and signs and wonders. And we, we have to ask ourselves this question. Did what happened then, is it supposed to happen now? And I want to I preach the whole counsel of God. I, I, I want to be faithful in understanding Scripture and explaining it to you. And I also want to be humble to let you know that different churches and denominations see this differently. And if we're not careful, it can divide us all the more. So does the work that God did in Acts, does he intend it for today? My answer is yes and no. Yes, he wants to do a work among us. We don't need to grieve the Holy Spirit or quench the Holy Spirit. We need to surrender ourselves to him and pray for every miracle, every sign, every wonder, everything that he wants to do in our midst. We want it to happen. But I would also say no because we don't build our church around one day, around one season. And I do believe that God wants to do much of what he did in our day, but I do believe this was a very special day. It was the day of Pentecost. It was the inauguration of a new era it was the birth of a church and I think God chose this day to do some work and you even begin to read Acts you see Peter after he preached the sermon was walking around healing people on demand like there's a there's a guy at the pool and he's he's homeless he's penniless and he's asking for silver and gold Peter's like silver and gold have I none but in the name of Jesus I command thee rise up and walk he's healed he's healing on demand but you get to Acts 15 and that's slowing down a little bit look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 if we think that we're always going to have signs and wonders and miracles and great things, look at, look at what Paul tells his young protege, Timothy. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Fulfill your ministry. I think there are times when we see clearly the work of God among us. And then I think there are times when it's dry and we have to endure. We have to be faithful. And we cling to the promises of God even when he seems so silent. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this. 
How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. That last phrase is what I understand about scripture. It's distributed according to his will. We can't be the church that tries to manufacture something that God doesn't want to do. But yet we need to be open to what he wants to do in this season. I won't do it every week because it'll be ad nauseum for you, but we have said to understand Acts because it's an unfolding narrative, we need to understand what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Descriptive describes something that has been done. Last night, I went to Whataburger at 2 a.m. Now, should you go to Whataburger at 2 a.m.? Trust me, you should not go to Whataburger. At two, I was there. You should not go to Whataburger at 2 a.m. Me going to Whataburger at 2 a.m., you guys really are worried about me now. There's a description of what happened to me, but it's not a prescription of what you should do. In Acts chapter 1, toward the end, when the power fell and things were beginning to happen, they cast lots to choose the 12th person, the guy that was going to replace you. They cast lots. Well, do we cast lots to look for leaders? No, we, we're more like Acts 6. Choose people among you who are full of the Spirit, who are, who are wise, who have a good reputation. We don't cast lots. So we see casting lots, and I, I encourage you to dig deeper to see why maybe that happened. But I believe it was descriptive for what happened at that time in that place and not prescriptive for us today this passage i believe in many ways is prescriptive we ought to be the kind of church that's devoted to the word to fellowship to breaking of bread and prayer now when it gets to the wealth the wealthy distributing and helping out the poor listen i think we ought to be generous absolutely we preach tithing and we talk about it and it's important We've made a commitment. We don't challenge anybody to do anything that we're not doing in our own lives. We choose to live on 90% of our income and give 10% actually more away. We do that. And we challenge other people to do that because I believe with God, 90 is better than 100. So we preach generosity. But I think because of what was happening in Acts, Jerusalem, the Feast of Pentecost, the, the, the transportation, the getting there, what was happening? They needed hospitality. They needed help. And thus, I believe God was doing something really specific to that time and that place. What is prescriptive and what is descriptive? So these women and these men committed, devoted to these ancient practices. And Scripture tells us, you saw it a moment ago, that the result of that was generosity and it was gladness. A gladness developed in their heart. You see, it's counterintuitive, but you and I were happier and we're freer when we don't cling tightly to stuff. When we give it away, we let him work, we let him use us. I want to be bold as we move into our future. I shared, I think, last week or the week before that I never dreamt that God would take a church not quite three years old like us a couple of years ago and that we would take on a, a new building and a $2 million banknote with Bank Plus, but he has been faithful. Does it scare me at times? Yes. Does it sometimes keep me up at night? Yes. But we're trusting him and God is providing. I believe he desires us to be a movement. And movements move and movements move into their future. And what we see here is a gladness. So I don't want you to feel a weight from this narrative, from this early church. I want to close by telling you a story and then relate it to what we've read. A woman married her husband 
And the husband was demanding and he was hard. He was bossy. He was unhappy. He insisted that she do things for him always. And he thanked her never. She had a long list of demands and expectations. She complied with his demands. But she hated her life. Her marriage was miserable. Cook my food, clean my clothes, wash and iron, yada, yada, yada. It was a miserable life in marriage. He dies after 20 years of marriage and she vowed that she would never marry again. But alas, a couple of years later, she meets a very, very tender man. He's really kind. And they marry. And one day in particular, she's doing some stuff around the house. She's cleaning and doing things. And she stumbles across a note from her late husband. It was a list of stuff that he wanted her to do. And in that moment, she laughs. She laughs out loud because she realizes she's still doing those same things and even more, but she's doing it with joy. She's doing it with joy and gladness. And what was once demanding obligation is now joy because she's been changed. Her heart has been touched by real love, by sacrificial love. We're going to learn that this church that functioned in such a healthy way, that there was persecution from out, there was fighting from within, and it wasn't always this way. It grew. When the Spirit works, the church increases. It spreads. It multiplies. And with that, there comes problems. And we'll look at that as the weeks unfold, but God never left them. God stayed with them. And He wants us to learn, as we devote ourselves to these ancient practices, that in the midst of it, there's joy and there's gladness because we do them because we're loved. Would you pray with me?